Good morning. Um, for the next uh, several weeks, I'm going to be here the, today and then the next two weeks, and I'm, uh, we're going to be, Gail and I are actually moving from New York to here physically um, the last week of June, and so I won't be here the 30th, and then my son is getting married, uh, second son is getting married, Robert, in uh, California on the week after that, and then I won't see you, but then I'll be here pretty much for the rest of my life. Whatever that life constitutes, right? So <laughs> I, I, I do want to say this to you. You know, we have been, um, Sanctuary has been a community that's done a lot of team teaching. And what I feel the Holy Spirit uh, nudging me to do is for the next uh, at least six months, if not a full year, will be with rare occasion be the primary voice in this, con in this context. I, I need to brain, I mean, I need to uh, encourage you. <laughs> no, I, there's just some things in my soul that I feel we need to lean into and I just feel like I need to do that so please bear with me we will have the occasional voice here and there but you're stuck um, I want to start reading this morning from our story in Acts chapter 2 I actually thought that was the reading going to be but I didn't realize we were going to read the gospel but that was my bad but let me go ahead and all those never bad to hear the gospel <laughs> But the Holy Spirit comes here at the day of Pentecost. I don't think they have the words up there. But listen to it. This is the story we, we're sharing today. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, suddenly. A sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying at Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken, utterly amazed. They asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and all the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them, and they said they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Remember, this is the one who had just a few days before denied Jesus. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons, your daughters will prophesy your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. I've been dreaming more lately. 
Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The word of the Lord. Today as we celebrate the explicit coming of the Spirit upon, you know, as experienced by these first um, members of the Christian church. It was a sudden thing, Acts 2 tells us. Violent wind hit the room where they were gathered. Must have startled them. What looked like fire appeared on their heads. They started speaking (laughs) this strange tongue speech uh, in language that they had not learned. And yet, as the story goes, people from other countries understood what they were saying. It was the first great story of the church, this ghost, Holy Ghost story. This isn't the first time that these disciples had experienced the Spirit. The Spirit was always engaged in the ministry of Jesus, as you recall. The truth is the Spirit has always been present since the dawn of creation. In Genesis 1, we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. The Hebrew word for hovering there means to brood. The imagery was like that of a hen brooding over the eggs or protecting her chicks. Hovering is a very maternal image. It could have been translated, as I said, brooding. It makes me wonder if someday the church might refer to the spirit as she. As comforter, nurturer, guide, a feminine pronoun for the spirit would be certainly theologically appropriate. The ever-present Spirit came in a way that was special in our reading today. The Spirit comes to rest, to brood on the disciples with power, to create space where they could become witnesses and proclaimers of the fact that God has come. Somehow, the Spirit comes, and when the Spirit comes, God is seen to reign, to rule in kindness generousness. There are descriptors of the Holy Spirit found in sacred text. The Spirit is called the breath of the Almighty in Job, the comforter, the eternal Spirit. The Spirit is also called God, the power of God, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of life, the Spirit of grace. The Spirit is called the Spirit of prophecy, the Spirit of adoption, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of might, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of knowledge, the Spirit of the fear of the Lord, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of holiness, the Spirit of judgment, the Spirit of fire, 
and the spirit of glory. The important point to recognize here is that the kingdom of God is present. The kingdom of God preponderates whenever the spirit is active. <laughs> In Jesus' explanation of how he was doing stuff. And one this particular point in Matthew 12, he's casting out demons. And listen to how he describes it. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. The idea is that anything we do by the Spirit reveals the kingdom. Anything we do under the influence of the Holy Spirit makes God's kingdom come. The Spirit was responsible for the ministry of Jesus. This is out of Luke. He describes it. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me. Anointing means to come upon, impress, right? You know, I was on this bus years ago when I was just a little guy, and, this, and I was riding all the way to St. Louis from Chicago. When I got on the bus, this I'm sitting there, and I thought, this is great, this seat, I'm by myself. And then this very, very nice but very large woman came and sat next to me, and she preponderated my space, right? She, she, she anointed me with her presence. <laughs> see, see, this is the idea, that the Spirit just kind of comes in, and you go, oh, hello? <laughs> and he begins to influence you, your emotions, your thoughts, your actions. Jesus goes on, he has anointed me, pressed on me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners, even if they're in prison. And recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed. The tragedy that lurks behind the human story is that God has always longed to be the resting king in the midst of the human experience. He always longed to be the one that was present and dominating with his life and his love and his kindness, his gentleness, his forbearance, his giving. And at what's called by theologians the eschaton, which is this moment that God is after in human history, uh, it's God's end game. Listen to what happens there. This is what happens. This is in Revelations 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. This is biblical language for evil. The sea was always feared in the Old Testament because they didn't understand it. And they thought it meant chaos and uncertainty. And so the, the Revelation writer is saying there's going to be a place, there's going to be a space where uncertainty doesn't cause us to fear. He said, I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, a city that's prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now, or at last, the dwelling of God, the resting king is with people. And he will live with them. It almost sounds like a pickup from Genesis 
three, you know, and he's walking in the cool of the evening. It's almost as if God wanted to hear this couple say, why don't you just move in? But they didn't. And so all that happens between Genesis 3 to Revelations 21 seems to be, at last, I can move in. That's what I always imagined. To live with them. And they will, be, they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. But the old order passed away. The new order has come. Now we know that's already begun because anyone who is in Christ, the old begins to pass, the new begins to come. So this new creation is already starting. But this is the eschaton. This is the end game of what we taste in faith. The tragedy behind the Eden narrative, and whether it's literal a story or not, is not what's important here. It, it, it's a story of the earth being God's Eden or God's temple. And God is here in this scene in Genesis as the benevolent, engaging, resting king, resting because Sabbath has come. And he had ceased from his works. But in that moment, God relates a vocation to the human race and says to the human race, hey, the Lord God, it's in Genesis 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. But that vocation was lost. And because of rebellion and the brokenness that ensued, humans could not fulfill their vocation. And so this Adam and Eve beings had heard the calling and they heard the vocation and they lost it through rebellion and they were subsumed out of the rule of God into the rule of death. And it has ruled over us as the result of the loss of God's rule. God left Eden. He was there, but really his rule left. The temple was empty from the rule of the resting king. And we see the same thing happening in the narrative of Israel. God called them his people. God asked them to be called to vocation, to represent him. God rescues them from death, brings them into his rule. But they want the rule of something else, a physical king. And God dwells among them through the tabernacle in the temple, but they continue to disobey and spin out from under his kind rule. And one day the prophet spoke of it, and then it happens. The temple lies empty of God's rule. The temple's loss and Israel's displacement being pulled to Babylon is an echo of Eden's tragedy. The new creation dawns as Jesus enters to bring kingdom blessing, far as the curse is found. That's how the song goes. Sacred text claims that creation groans 
in expectation of the rise of the king and of his resting here. This whole world is about God and God's kingdom, not just about personal salvation. Yes, something is broken in us and we need to be saved. And our loss is healed and our brokenness is healed in Christ to be sure. But the real issue is not about that. It's about God. About God being in all. And he is in all, but he's not ruling all. His kingdom is still coming. That's why we pray. The church, and we know from the Didache, which is an ancient document that's still extant. We still have copy. We still have the what was written in it. Written about 50 CE, which would have been about five years before the first New Testament text was written, which would have been Galatians. So it's very ancient. And in there... The, in the Didache, it's called the Apostles' Teaching. That's what it stands for. And they said, pray thee, our Father, three times a day. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Then what? Thy kingdom. Come. It's our cry. Thy kingdom, come. That's what this is about. Not just save me, make me feel better about myself and help me have happy days with money in the bank. It's about, Father, come. Re-Eden. Re-Temple. Bring the eschaton. Let your kingdom squeeze into your pushes a little. Dominate us with your kindness and your goodness and your life. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits. Then we, when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when Jesus hands over the kingdom of God to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all God's enemies under God's feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. See, what this is about, it's about kingdom struggle. So much more than our provincial or um, our solipsism, our are making this about me, 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 and how do I feel, and what do I think? I mean, thank God what you think and how you feel matters. I would hate to tell you otherwise, you are Americans. <laughs> God forbid. But there's something greater. Oh, this is going to hurt. There's something greater going on than you or me. Death which came in in the absence of God's rule is anti-kingdom. The second advent is about the king returning, the second coming of Christ to his temple, earth, not just about personal salvation. We don't spend eternity someplace out there, according to sacred text. I don't know how it all works, but the way the story goes, we spend it here. Our creed says, we believe 
in our Lord Jesus Christ, who was born of the whole power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. What's he doing? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again. That's what we believe. Is it true? I think so. I mean, how do you know these things, right? It's just what we believe. He will come again. And then the Nicene Creed adds, and his kingdom will have no end. Man, that'll make you speak in tongues if nothing else will right there. You know, Shandai, right? This whole thing is about a kingdom where the king rests in Sabbath here. Our vocation, our calling was to participate in that kingdom, not to create our own. The Spirit comes upon us to that end to enable the kingdom of God to be seen in our lives, in our families, in the spaces where we work, where we give ourselves. I used to think that the Holy Spirit was in my life primarily to keep me from being naughty. He's the Holy Spirit, right? To keep me up on my personal holiness as though that was God's primary concern. To keep me from drinking or smoking or chewing tobacco. Or thinking inappropriate thoughts. I mean, that's what I thought he was about. I think what we do personally matters, to be sure. But that is not the end. That is not God's purpose. I mean, it's not God's point. It's part of a process, but it's not the point. Genesis 126, then God said, let us make people. Let us, it's almost like you get inside the mind of God in this text, right? Here's what I'm thinking, everybody. God, <laughs> let's make people like God's Trinity in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule. In other words, let them enter into our rule. See, we're invited right into this kingdom thing. We were not created to just believe something. We were created to enter the rule of God. Certainly belief is essential to entering into that. But it's not the goal of it. When we try to tell people about the gospel, it's not to get them to have this event and they pray this prayer and, and then we get done and say, okay, now let's go get somebody else to pray this prayer. What we're supposed to be doing is saying, hey, do you know there's a vocation? Do you know you matter? Do you know that you're not an accident? Do you know that there's a king who can rule in your life and you can let that kingdom spill into your world and bring good and grace and help to the world that needs the rule of God? Not just get you to believe something so you continue to just be who you are, except now you got this little badge or ticket. To heaven, which you won't be there. Anyway, you're coming back here, baby. <laughs> when you think of God's interest like this, it changes what we are most sorrowful over. What we really think is sin. The only place that talks about 
the judgment clearly, explicitly, is Matthew 25. It's so odd that we don't pay much attention to it. Matthew 25, Jesus is talking about these sheep and goats that he separates, and he starts talking to the sheep, and he says, you're coming into the kingdom because of this. And they go, really? I didn't know what was even going on. Then he talks to the goats. Here's what he says to them. And he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty. It didn't touch you. You gave me nothing to drink, didn't even notice it. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes, but you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison. You didn't notice. You did not look after me. They will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for the people in your world, the least of these, whatever you did not do to them, you did not do to me. See, when we think of sin, we usually think of our inward ugliness or how we sow wild oats through drinking or partying or lying or crossing a moral line or some other deplorable peccadillo. But according to Jesus here, the sin that besieges the human race is not a moral problem. Although morality gets involved. What haunts our souls is not just personal sin. What, what makes us sinners is our ignoring those who need us. It's not identifying our neighbor. We don't even notice the guy beat up on the road. We're on the other side doing our stuff, being religious, being right. I promise you I'm not being political here, but let me just stick my finger in your eye for just a minute. <laughs> Guard your heart about immigrants. There are legitimate issues to address with immigration, but fear and violent reaction are never a Christian's choice. Listen to Jesus. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. The Hebrew writer says, do not forget to entertain strangers for by so doing some people have entertained angels without even knowing it. We have to have good laws. We have to stem things that aren't right. But at the end of the day, we have to love and not victimize people who are just feeling vulnerable. See, is it an easy answer? No. Is it a political answer? No. Is it an absolute mess? Yes. Can you vote this away? No. So what do we do? I don't know. But you should be freaked out a little about it. And not just, well, I know the answer. 
I'd hate to, I'd hate to see you goat into this. Little goaty goaty. What if the big sins are things like our refusal to even take note of the plight of those in distant lands who are dying today because of a lack of water or food or really basic cheap medicines? What if modern transportation was God's hope to help extend God's care to an isolated world? What if our ability to zoom around the earth in just a matter of days is really not to enrich business or personal pleasure, but to help us bring his kingdom? Or I think about the night in that early 1990s when I watched the shock and awe campaign of the first attack on Iraq and Saddam Hussein, and I was delighted. as I watched America show its force. I wanted to be right. But my delight had no hint of even being aware of the loss of innocence of the elderly, of the sick, of the moms cuddling their infants like some of us cuddle our kids when storms come through. Or the death of children who had no idea what was going on. Didn't even touch me. Didn't even give it a thought. I wanted America to crush whatever I perceived as evil. What if that's a greater indication of wickedness than eating too many donuts or peering with lustful eyes at someone. I'm not asking you to eat more donuts <laughs> or not control your heart and eyes. But what if the sins that grieve God the most are the ones that most deeply wound our neighbors? What if God really does care about more than me? Dr. Green, our very own Dr. Green, wrote this recently in his book. I forget the name of it, the Spirit's almost spirit. Here's what he wrote, quote, we almost always hear talk of sin as a moral judgment. We imagine that admitting we're sinners is an acknowledgement that we've had bad thoughts, that we've done bad things, but that misses the mark entirely. We are called not to be moral by the standards and orders of our society, but to be holy as God is holy. Sin, therefore, is not the failure to live a good, clean life, but the refusal to let God's goodness come alive in us for the good of others. Sin is whatever stifles or frustrates the fullness of joy in our neighbor's life. Sin is the unwillingness to take the risks that loving our enemy requires. Sin is anything and everything that is done unlovingly, anything and everything that is done in bad faith, anything and everything that leaves us hopeless, as Paul says, whatever is not of faith is sin. End quote. 
the Spirit comes as God's kingdom, God's kingdom comes, God's kingdom, God's rule is about love and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and joy. It carries no conceit. It is not provoking. It harbors no envy. When we cry, Spirit, come, we're crying, thy kingdom, come. Well, I got that off my chest. <laughs> One more thing before we close. We need to address this. It's Pentecost Sunday, right? Pentecost is about the supernatural. It accompanies the explicit appearance of the Spirit. Like we said, the tornadic wind, what looked like fire, the appearance of these tongues, glossolalia it's called, on, on Pentecost Sunday, speaking these languages they hadn't learned. Some of the nation's dialects understood them. That's called xenolalia. In other words, when somebody speaks in tongues, glossolalia, and it's understood as xenolalia. In other words, it's a natural language that somebody actually hears. The Pentecostal movement of the 1900s, because they knew this happened, that's one of the reasons they wanted to send people out that spoke in tongues, because they were hoping they would speak languages that they didn't learn. There's a deep missional, missionary impulse in that. The point is something out of the ordinary started here. I am a tongue talker, mostly a closet one, not because I'm ashamed of it, but because I feel the Spirit is emphasizing something a little different in our generation, and I'm just being faithful to that prophetic impulse. It's kind of an ecstatic speech, caught up in some way in ecstasy. Paul claims that this tongue speech builds you up in your spirit. He claims that it brings comfort to us. Uh, interestingly, tongue speech is not unique to Christianity. Ecstatic tongue speak was uh, in the ancient literature from the first century in Mithra religious organizations or groups they would pray in tongues in their worship. It, it may be that there's some kind of a human response to being immersed in something deeply spiritual that emotes this experience. A decade or so ago, some scientists in America did some brain scans of people that were doing praying in tongues versus general praying. And they found out that there were areas of the brain as they spoke in tongues that are associated with calm and associated with peacefulness that lit up when they were praying in tongues. It, it follows what Isaiah said in Isaiah 25. Paul quotes this in 1 Corinthians 14, so it is a tongues passage. Very well then, with foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to his people and watch to whom he would say, this is the resting place. Let the weary rest, and this is the place of repose. I mean, what if tongues is just like a really good sedative? <laughs> How many of you have a little more anxiety than you probably want? What if tongues helps that? I find that it does. Sometimes tongue speech is associated, I said, with missions. I have a good well, she's passed away now, Ola Zagarek. She's a precious lady who never told stories. You had to dig them out of her. And, uh, but she was, she was back involved with the uh, uh, Woman's Aglow. Does anybody remember Women's Aglow, right? Okay, so she was, it was an old Pentecostal uh, interdenominational woman's thing. And she would go to those things and get invited all over. She was so understated. I mean, she didn't have any, you know, didn't move in any kind of real religious way. She just seemed like this really nice German girl, lady. And uh, 
but she would have these pretty amazing stories about how God would do stuff. Like she was talking about after she went, and I found out about you. She wouldn't tell people this. You had to kind of dig. So she spoke at this woman's a glow story, a place in Marshfield, Wisconsin, where I was pastoring back in the 80s. And she was, I was talking to her, and, and she said, oh, I had the strangest experience. She said, I walked away from the meeting. She said, there was such a presence of God there. And she said, I went, and I went to Kmart, and I got in the parking lot, and I got out, and I started walking into Kmart. She said, I'm going down the aisles, and people that would come around me, they all started falling out. They fell down on the ground. Uh, you know, she said, oh, she said, oh my gosh, she said, I better go back into the car and let this wear off. <laughs> that's, that's, that's Ola Zagarek. It's like, Ola, that's like a crazy story. If, if it were me, I'd be on the front page of a Charisma magazine on that deal. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm trying to da 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 You know, she was so understated. Never tried to get publicized, you know, anything publicized. Anyway, so she was, just to give you another example, she, she, she had gotten really sick. And interestingly, she had a lot of sickness. Sometimes the most deeply spiritual people will often have physical ailments. That's been true historically. Saints, Augustine, deeply sick most of his life. Don't be thrown. You know, you just be faithful. So anyway, so she, she had gotten so sick and, they, and she had to have surgery and she got on this medication and it was some sort of an opioid or something. It was back in the 90s. But anyway, she, whatever it was, maybe those weren't out then, but she got hooked on these drugs. And so I'm sitting meeting with her, and I said to her, what's going on? She said, I'm getting off of these drugs. She said, I am hooked. She says, I'm like a, I'm an addict. <laughs> She's telling me. I said, what are you doing? I said, well, she said, I prayed. I said, the Lord told me, I'll get you free. So, but he said, it's going to take 30 days, and you're going to suffer a lot. And, and she said, I feel like he said to me, he wants me to experience the pain that addicts have to go through so that I can pray better for addicts. I mean, that makes me want to slap somebody. Say, did you hear that? What a giving, loving response. The supernatural in a very natural way. <laughs> anyway, so anyway, the point was I said all that to say... <laughs> She was going into surgery one time with this Chinese doctor in Marshfield, Wisconsin. Marshfield, this huge clinic. It's only 18,000 people to clinic at 500 doctors. So it's just a very center of medicine. So she was going under the knife, and she's, as, as, she, as she was rolling in, the doctor came and asked her, was talking to her a little bit. And right before they put her under, she said to the doctor, do you mind if I pray? And the doctor said, well, sure. So he's, he's an Asian doctor. And um, so she started, she, she grabbed his hand and she prayed a little bit and then she starts speaking in tongues. So after she's done, she opens her eyes and the doctor's just astonished. He goes, how do you know Mandarin? She said, I don't know Mandarin. <laughs> she's a German 80-year-old woman, right? She's an old Mandarin. He goes, you just spoke to me about God and his faithfulness in Mandarin. And she goes, oh, oh, that was just the Holy Spirit. What do you mean the Holy Spirit? <laughs> and so she explained to him. And so he said, okay. He said, go into that. She said, but when she came out on the other side, the surgery was fine. She came out on the other side. The doctor said, do you mind if I bring my family in? He flew his family in from all over the United States to come and sit down with her so she could explain what the Holy Spirit was. How? I love that stuff. I got to stop. I love that stuff. All right, so I, I, I okay, I'm done.